You can now get two free audiobook downloads and a 30-day free trial at audible.pagosity.tv. Your choice from the world's largest selection of over 180,000 digital audiobooks and spoken word content for your iOS or Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. Go to audible.pagosity.tv now. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of July 2nd, 2017. The podcast that's revved up like a deuce, another runner in the night. This is your host, Shane Killian, and returning this week is Chris Hangartner. Chris, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be back. Sorry if I sound like a zombie today. Yeah, me too. I was okay until the thunderstorms rolled in and then... Energy levels went way down. Yeah. By the way, you know July 2nd is the proper Independence Day, right? I don't know if we've covered that or not. Yeah, contrary to popular belief, July 4th is not the day the Declaration of Independence was signed. They didn't actually start signing it until, like, August, because the parchment wasn't ready until then. July 2nd was the day they actually voted on Virginia's Independence Declaration to actually say, yes, we're breaking away. And by the way, all you potheads, the Declaration of Independence was written on parchment, not hemp paper. Well, Jefferson's original draft was written on hemp paper. The parchment that everyone signed was written on vellum. Yeah. I still don't understand why some people try to use the Declaration of Independence as an argument to legalize pot. I'm like, you know, look, that's I'm all for that, but could you think of something else? That sounds stupid. Yeah. But the point is, when John Adams was talking about the day being remembered with fireworks and everything, he was talking about the second, not the fourth. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, let's trilbify the news of the bogus. So you know how when we covered that great decision from the Supreme Court in our catch-up hangout, Daniel said, well, they're actually kind of 50-50? Yeah. Well, they just proved him right. In Murr versus Wisconsin, 12 years to the day after the horrific Kelo decision, the Supreme Court dealt another blow to our Fifth Amendment property rights by saying that bureaucrats don't have to compensate you when they deny the resale value of your property, even when they've been taxing you at that rate. Oh, funny. You know, it's just like with eminent domain, you know, the government always says, well, we can take it, but we promise to equally compensate you, and they only give you like $50,000 for your house when your house could have been 150000 Yeah. So, Donna Murr's family owns two small parcels of land along the St. Croix River in Wisconsin. They wanted to sell one of the two parcels, the one that was left undeveloped, and they had had that as kind of a long-term investment since their parents had bought it in the 60s, but thanks to regulations passed in the 80s, they were prevented from doing so. Still, the lot was appraised for tax purposes at $400,000. These regulations made the county the only possible buyer, and the county offered them $40,000, a tenth of what they had appraised it at. Again, that's why you should not have a government monopoly. So they sued, citing the Doctrine of Regulatory Takings, which says the government regulation that overly burdens property rights count as a taking under the Fifth Amendment, and therefore that the owners are entitled to just compensation. Now, courts have maintained that the doctrine applies to the parcel as a whole. The Supreme Court ruled five to three against the MERS, and Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, said that that whole parcel as a whole thing shouldn't be left to niggling little details like where the property line actually is. <laughs> yeah, the politicians, they don't want to hear the details. The MERS could still sell both lots together, so it actually doesn't count as a taking. Quote, 
Lot lines have varying degrees of formality across the states, so it is difficult to make them a standard measure of the reasonable expectations of property owners. The valid merger of the lots under state law informs the reasonable expectation that they will be treated as a single property. Considering petitioner's property as a whole, the state court was correct to conclude that petitioners cannot establish a compensable taking in these circumstances. Petitioners have not suffered a taking under Lucas as they have not been deprived of all economically beneficial use of their property. They can use the property for residential purposes, including an enhanced, larger residential improvement. In other words, government destroying the value of a parcel doesn't count as a taking if you also happen to own the lot next to it. <laughs> Joining Kennedy were Breyer, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor. Gorsuch declined to take part, as is the tradition for SCOTUS newbies unless there's a deadlock. Kennedy also ruled, quote, Petitioners cannot reasonably have expected to use the lot separately because they were charged with knowledge of the existing zoning laws when they acquired the property. Except, as I said, this law wasn't passed until two decades after it was purchased. Now listen to this one, quote, Petitioner's rule would frustrate municipalities' ability to implement minimum lot size regulations by casting doubt on the many merger provisions that exist nationwide today. Oh, well, by all means, if it would frustrate municipalities, then let's just give up our basic constitutional rights. I mean, what do you think that is, the supreme law of the land or something? And that's another reason why I can't buy it when some of those radical leftists say property is theft. And I'm like, uh, if you don't respect private property rights, this is what happens. Yep. Everything you own and love is just up for grabs. And anyone can walk in, take it, or steal it from you and say, I need it more than you do. Justice Roberts wrote a dissent in which he was joined by Thomas and Melito, quote, Our decisions have, time and time again, declared that the Takings Clause protects private property rights as state law creates and defines them. The majority's new malleable definition of private property, adopted solely for purposes of the Takings Inquiry, undermines that protection. I would stick with our traditional approach. State law defines the boundaries of distinct parcels of land, and those boundaries should determine the private property at issue in regulatory takings cases. In sum, the parcel as a whole requirement prevents a property owner from identifying a single strand in his bundle of property rights and claiming that interest has been taken. Allowing that strategic approach to redefining private property would undermine the balance struck by our regulatory takings cases. Instead, state law creates distinct parcels of land and defines the rights that come along with owning those parcels. Those established bundles of rights should define the private property in regulatory takings cases. And he also said that there is, quote, no basis for disregarding state property lines when identifying the parcel as a whole. And so they conclude, quote, Put simply, today's decision knocks the definition of private property loose from its foundation on stable state law rules and throws it into the maelstrom of public factors that come into play at the second step of the takings analysis. The result? The majority's new framework compromises the takings clause as a barrier between individuals and the press of the public interest. That's what they always say. It's in the name of public interest. And Donna Murr herself said, quote, it is our hope that property owners across the country will learn from our experience and not take their property rights for granted. Although the outcome was not what we had hoped for, we believe our case will demonstrate the importance of taking a stand and protecting property rights through the court system when necessary.
say, if you're tired of the promos in this podcast, well, the patrons got it early and with no ads or promos. Just go to patreon.bogosity.tv and donate at any level. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Twins. All the crap from fake news outlets like CNN on the supposed threats Russia is to our democracy and puppies and rainbows and all that is good and decent is getting so bad that it's resulted in three CNN journalists resigning. I still don't get why they're so obsessed with Russia, you know. They want the Cold War back, I guess. <sighs> and they say Republicans are the warmongers. Anthony Scaramucci is an entrepreneur and financier whom Trump attempted to appoint director of the White House Office of Public Liaison and Intergovernmental Affairs. A manufacturer arose that he was involved in a $10 billion investment scam with the Russians, and he lost his position to George Sikovus instead. Yeah, th that was one of the few things I did like about him was that the people he was appointing for his cabinet and all that, they actually, doing my own research, they looked like really good, legitimate people. Like, I liked Michael Flynn. Yeah. Some of his treasury advisors, you know, were going up, but then the whole Russian debacle said, and then the deep state came in and said, oh, you can't have these guys because at one point they shook hands with a guy who's like a distant cousin of Vladimir Putin's best friend. Or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so he's a danger to national security, so you can't appoint him, you know. Especially Michael Flynn, because Michael Flynn was one of the few commanders that was flat out saying, look, if the United States wants to decrease terrorism and, and anti-Americanism around the world, we gotta pull out of areas like the Middle East, you know, but... Oh, yeah. But the deep state didn't like that. It's pretty funny, because every time I say the deep state, people think, oh, well, you're just being a conspiracy theorist. Well, I'm not like the guy that thinks, like, the government's controlled by reptilian humanoids. I'm just saying, you know, the deep state, like, and I just want to clarify this to people, the deep state is kind of like the established status quo, and it's basically all those, you know, politicians in, in the Senate and Congress, they've been there for years, but they have a lot of connections, and basically their agenda is just to keep things at the status quo, keep America this big imperial superpower, and anyone that comes in your way, you try to manipulate them in, in, into stopping. And we've been seeing that in droves. Well, like so many of these stories tying Trump and members of his team to Russia, CNN relied on a single anonymous source. The source described meetings between Trump's team and Russian officials, and on June 14th, the Senate approved new sanctions against Russia based on this meeting. The problem is, there isn't the first bit of truth to it. Wasn't um, the proof that Saddam Hussein had WMDs from an anonymous tip, too? Oh, yeah. And that guy was later exposed to have lied? Mm-hmm. Well, even when it's not anonymous, you remember that one woman who went into Congress saying that she had personally seen them pulling the infants from incubators and all that? And that ended up being a lot of crap. 
Yeah, I believe even during the first Gulf War, there was stuff like that, like the Kuwaitis, you know, were going around saying the Iraqis were raping women, shooting babies for no reason. And the United States said, holy crap, we got to make Iraq pay. But the United Nations that were on the ground, you know, they're also said, that's weird because we're not seeing anything like that. I mean, yeah, there is violence against the civilians, but it's no different than any other military occupation. One of the journalists who resigned over this, Thomas Frank, had written, quote, the source said the Senate Intelligence Committee is investigating the Russian fund in connection with its examination of discussions between White House advisor Jared Kushner and the head of a prominent Russian bank. The bank oversees the fund, which has ties to several Trump advisors. Both the bank and the fund have been covered since 2014 by sanctions restricting U.S. business dealings. Frank had written this in an article that CNN has since taken down, but it lives on in the Internet Archive. Frank had named Scaramucci as the Trump team member who met with the Russian Fund's chief executive. Another retraction had to be made after CNN gave its audience several assurances, based on anonymous sources, that James Comey was going to deny Trump's claim that the FBI director assured him that he wasn't the target of any investigation. Instead... Comey confirmed Trump's story very clearly and distinctly, and I'm including a link to a recent episode of the No Agenda podcast where they cover this. And don't worry, you won't have to listen to the whole three hours, it's just the first part, but they play the news media's coverage of what they claim Comey said, and then they play Comey's unedited remarks, showing that the news media kept deliberately editing Comey to make it sound like he was saying the exact opposite of what he actually did. And part of what you'll hear is three separate places where Comey said he told Trump that Trump was not personally under investigation. Yeah, that's another thing, too. You know, everyone loves to think that Comey being fired, you know, is, is proof that Trump's hiding something. When if you actually follow the news and look at what Comey's recent activities has been... I would have fired him. Oh, yeah. That guy was completely incompetent and made the FBI from once a well-respected crime-fighting organization into a joke. He wouldn't have lasted two seconds in a Killian administration, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Resigning along with Frank are Eric Lichtbau, a Pulitzer Prize winner formerly with the New York Times, and Lex Harris, head of CNN's investigative unit. CNN said that, quote, Standard editorial processes were not followed when the article was published, but as we've seen, that seems to be the norm nowadays with CNN and other mainstream media outlets. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So once again, I'm really thankful for outlets like The Intercept and journalists of integrity like Glenn Greenwald. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. 
Of course, when you look at what Trump and the Republican Congress have been doing, it's not exactly stellar. In fact, it seems a lot more like welcome the new boss, same as the old boss. Case in point, the Senate GOP health care bill, which does not actually solve any of the problems caused by Obamacare, and according to the Congressional Budget Office, will even make things worse. Yeah, well... The thing with healthcare and all that is because we've been brainwashed, you know, since we were little kids to believe that healthcare is a universal right and only government can pay for it, that it reaches the point where, and even it's well established that you know, the universal healthcare program is broken and beyond repair, every time you propose we need to get rid of it, they say, okay, but what are you going to replace it with? And I'm like, look, it doesn't work no matter what we try. The solution is to get government out of healthcare, not in it. Senator Mitch McConnell had said, quote, what you need to understand is there are 25 million Americans who aren't covered now. If the idea behind Obamacare was to get everyone covered, that's one of the many failures. In addition to the premiums going up, co-payments going up, deductibles going up, and many Americans who actually did get insurance when they did not have it before have really bad insurance that they have to pay for, and the deductibles are so high that it's really not worth much to them. So it is chaotic. The status quo is simply unacceptable. Yeah, didn't you say that Obamacare messed up your insurance? Oh, big time. Didn't you have to find a new insurance because your old one skyrocketed? Oh, uh, no, I wasn't allowed to have it. Oh. It was not legal anymore under Obamacare. Oh, wow. And it was good, too. It was just a couple hundred dollars. It paid for, you know, it didn't pay every time you blew your nose. But, I mean, I got a couple of well visits a year, a couple of sick visits, and... Other than that, it was a deductible of a few thousand, but it was good. It had a pretty good prescription drug thing, too, and, well. Some people argue that this whole bureaucracy in the U.S. healthcare system is why we need, you know, a government monopoly on healthcare, because they're like, well, if it's just the government running, there's no more lobbyists and all that. It's like, have you read, like, British news press about the NHS? There's a shit ton of lobbying. There's the, oh, yeah. the doctor's lobbies, you know. In fact, even though all the medical care is, you know, government-owned, you know, the medicine is still developed by private companies, so they have a lobby. It's like... Like, the solution is get government out of healthcare people, not give them power. Well, according to the CBO, quote, The Senate bill would increase the number of people who are uninsured by 22 million in 2026 relative to the number under current law. By 2026, an estimated 49 million people would be uninsured compared with 28 million who would lack insurance that year under current law. Under the Senate bill, average premiums for benchmark plans for single individuals would be about 20% higher in 2018 than under current law. Basically, the CBO's report undermines every single claim McDonnell made. Now, the Senate plan does remove the individual mandate. Sort of. It includes a penalty for people who go without coverage for 63 days by prohibiting them from obtaining insurance coverage for another six months. As this Reason.com blog post states, quote, Republicans did not respond to the failures of Obamacare with a different vision of how the healthcare system should be organized. They did not build a case for policies with different goals about the healthcare system. Instead, they criticized Obamacare for not living up to its own goals, for failing on its own terms. Even in their criticisms, they bought into its premises. They had no policy goals of their own to promote. Hey, look, people, the only solution is government needs to stay out of health care. 
We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the Internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the Internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your Internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to derectify this week's biggest bogan emitter. This is from six months ago, but then it was just a Hollywood mouthpiece spouting off drivel. But it's become relevant because the World Wide Web Consortium is moving forward with EME, which is encrypted media extensions. Now, encryption is great, right? We want encryption to protect our privacy. Except that this name is very deceptive. What we're talking about is DRM, and the W3C is making it a standard for the web. Now, this moron's name is Christopher Levy, and this article is just cringeworthy from start to finish, but it now appears to be the argument of the day, the driving force behind what the World Wide Web is becoming. Quote, In a nutshell, the EFF and Cory Doctorow both believe that Hollywood and content creators at large don't have the right to secure their digital media content by using DRM. They profess that all content on the web should mostly be free because DRM is bad and doesn't enable security researchers to do their jobs. Okay, second claim first. Security researchers depend on being able to reverse engineer software and protocols and transmissions so they can go looking for security holes. Video content has been one huge way malware is being spread nowadays, so if there are any holes in the protocols that deliver video, that could represent a huge threat to millions of people around the world. Those holes need to be discovered, disclosed, and patched. But the fact that DRM is there makes that illegal. Security researchers cannot do that because of the DMCA and other similar legislation around the world, since they would have to crack the DRM to do it. Yeah, the DMC, that's that bill that says you can copyright math. Pretty much, yeah. Well, what it really says is you can't break any form of copy protection no matter what reason. There's not even a fair use exception. Wow. And I mean, it says a bunch of other things too, but that's the relevant one here. As for the first claim, here is what the W3C's mission statement says, quote, The social value of the web is that it enables human communication, commerce, and opportunities to share knowledge. One of W3C's primary goals is to make these benefits available to all people, whatever their hardware, software, network infrastructure, native language, culture, geographical location, or physical or mental ability. 
DRM absolutely undermines this mission. It locks people into certain software, often even certain hardware. It absolutely restricts geographical location. And by going against things like VPNs and proxies, it works against network infrastructure as well. So it's completely undermining four-sevenths of the W3C's goals. <laughs> yeah. Why is it so difficult for people to understand that we need good encryption and that we can't be so obsessed with patents and copyrights when it comes to encryption? Yeah, and I mean, the whole point of encryption is that only the endpoint can decrypt it. Well, with DRM, you are the endpoint, but they don't want you to decrypt it, even though you have to decrypt it to view the content. So it's a catch-22. Yeah, I mean, it's just... It, it doesn't work... It doesn't actually work physically or mathematically. That's why they had to pass the DMCA and laws like that. So back to the article, quote, According to Corey and the EFF, all DRM is bad and prevents security researchers from doing their jobs. Now they are forcing their myopic viewpoints on the W3C's EME working group. Um, excuse me? Whose viewpoints are going against the very mission of the W3C? It's not Dr. O or the EFF. It's you and your Hollywood cartel buddies. Yep. Quote, Corey Doctorow, Ian Hickson, and the whole myopic staff of the EFF have decided that you don't deserve to view your content in your browser on your device in the time and place you designate. That's amazing because that's exactly what DRM does. God. If the W3C removes EME from the HTML specification, the entire digital media industry will be thrown into a tumultuous flat spin with no clear pathway to resolution. 100 million American consumers of online streaming and downloadable movie and TV content will no longer be able to watch their favorite content on their favorite devices in their favorite location because of a few highly antisocial technical digerati security consultants. The entire streaming video, OTT, and TVE industries will literally go dark. Yes, they're throwing out the going dark canard of the encryption haters. Look, there's never been any evidence to show that DRM is at all necessary. The idea of DRM supposedly is to stop piracy, but since content, like I said, it has to be decrypted to be viewed, you necessarily have to give the encryption keys to the viewer, the very person you're trying to stop from pirating it. So not only are you treating all of your customers like they're criminals, you're not doing a thing to stop piracy. Imagine if we go back to the traditional age of piracy. What we're doing today would be the equivalent of, like, the British Empire saying, okay, we have a law that'll stop pirates once and for all. We guarantee it works. We are going to ban regular people from traveling on ships. Yep. No, what DRM really is, is a means to control people, stifle innovation, and keep competition down, as we've pointed out before... These big media cartels are just dinosaurs who don't want to adapt to the digital age. Yep. And with DRM, even customers who have purchased and downloaded the content find themselves unable to view it if the app can't call home to the server to authorize it. Making backup copies or copying it to your favorite device is difficult at best. You can pretty much forget having your own choice of software to view it with. Even Bill Gates and Steve Jobs spoke out against DRM. The iTunes Store has been DRM-free for purchased songs, as well as songs purchased on Amazon. And security expert Bruce Schneier said, quote, It's an impossible task. 
All entertainment media on the internet, like everything else on the internet, is just bits. Ones and zeros. Bits are inherently copyable, easily and repeatedly. If you have a digital file, text, music, video, or whatever, you can make as many copies of that file as you want. Do whatever you want with the copies. This is a natural law of the digital world. and makes copying on the internet different from copying Rolex watches or Louis Vuitton luggage. What the entertainment industry is trying to do is use technology to contradict that natural law. They want a practical way to make copying hard enough to save their existing business. But they are doomed to fail. All digital copy protection schemes can be broken, and once they are, the breaks will be distributed, law or no law. Average users will be able to download these tools from websites that the laws have no jurisdiction over. Pirated digital content will be generally available on the web. Everyone will have access. So, I mean, the last thing we need is for the web standards to put this in place. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, here's a new rule. If you're for DRM, I don't want to hear one word from you about net neutrality, because it undermines all of the stated goals of net neutrality, too. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this blog is posted on buydrm.com, which, oh, look, they sell DRM hardware and software solutions. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, in the show notes, I've included a link to a petition from the Free Software Foundation to tell the W3C that we don't want them to undermine the free web just so Hollywood can make unearned profits, so please go check that out. But it's just incredible how Christopher Levy is accusing Dr. O and the EFF of doing exactly what DRM does in the first place. And so that can mean that only Christopher Levy could be this week's biggest bogan emitter. If you're going to shop online, use our special links to shop at Amazon. Clear your cookies and go to Amazon.Pagosity.tv, and you won't pay a penny more for your purchase. If you haven't used the mobile app in the last 12 months, or even at all, go to Get5.Pagosity.tv on your phone or tablet and get $5 off your order of $10 or more. Go to Prime.Pagosity.tv for a free 30-day trial of Amazon Prime and enjoy thousands of movies and TV episodes, borrow Kindle books, and get unlimited two-day shipping for free. And speaking of Kindle, go to Kindle.Pagosity.tv for a 30-day free trial to Kindle Unlimited, read over one million books, and listen to thousands of audiobooks on any device. You can go to music.pagosity.tv and get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Music Unlimited with access to Amazon's entire library of 10 million songs, ad-free and with unlimited skips, and even download to listen offline. All great ways to help this podcast simply by shopping at Amazon. And now let's rebug this week's Idiot Extraordinary. This week it goes to Australia Attorney General George Brandis, because although all of those statists love encryption in the form of DRM like we just talked about, apparently for absolutely everything else in the world, it's a horrible tool for criminals and terrorists, and something that absolutely nobody should be allowed to have. <laughs> well, then again, this is Australia, and everyone knows that everything fun in Australia is against the law. Regarding a meeting with the Five Eyes Intelligence Partners, which is the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, Brandis said that defeating encryption is very much a big part of it. He told ABC Radio, quote, 
Encryption can severely undermine public safety if it's by impeding lawful access to the content of communications during investigations into serious crimes during terrorism. So what we decided to do in particular was to engage with ISPs and device makers to secure from them the greatest possible level of cooperation. I also discussed with my American counterpart, Attorney General Sessions, the development of cross-border access without having to go through the rather prolonged procedure of mutual legal assistance. Yeah, because who needs all that due process stuff? Yeah, need I remind you that it was proven time and time again that stronger decryption would not have stopped them or caught them in time. Most of them weren't even using encryption. Yeah. So ABC Radio asked him, quote, what are you actually asking them to do? Because tech companies say you can only break into these messages if you've planted a flaw or a bug into the software before it's sold. Is that what you want the device makers to do? He replied, What we need is to develop, and what we'll be asking the device makers and the ISPs to agree to is a series of protocols as to the circumstances in which they'll be able to provide voluntary assistance to law enforcement. So, a complete non-answer. Yeah, yep, that's how they usually respond. Yeah. And he was emphatic that they're not asking for a backdoor, but the only way they can do that is with a backdoor. Yep, and they still can't come to the logic that uh, if there's a backdoor that lets you guys get in, that means there's a backdoor for the bad guys to get in. He also said it would be infeasible to ban end-to-end -end encryption apps like Signal. So he says end-to-end -end encryption is a problem, he doesn't want a backdoor, and he doesn't want to ban the apps, so what's left? <laughs> he doesn't know what he wants. I don't know. I mean, it's like he's insisting that device makers and software developers make 2 plus 2 equal 5. Yep. And then we're going to tell them that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 5, and then they're going to force like the International Academy of Mathematics to change the formula. Well, we'll just create the protocols that will allow 2 plus 2 to equal 5. That's what we'll do. <laughs> yeah. So, now George Brandis joins with all the other clueless anti-math politicians who spewed this crap and got themselves named... Idiot Well, that wraps up this You There, Computer Man, Fix My Pants edition of the Bogosity Podcast. Come join the discussion at forum.bogosity.tv and feel free to send a question, statement, news article, or rant in text or audio to podcast at bogosity.tv. This podcast depends on you to keep going, so please donate using the links on the website or the QR codes in the thumbnail or become a patron at patreon.bogosity.tv and get the podcast and YouTube videos early and without ads or promos. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Chris Hangardner for joining me. Good to be back. Can I go back to sleep now? Sure. <laughs> Until next time, here's a quote from Lawrence Lessig. Creation always involves building upon something else. There is no art that doesn't reuse, and there will be less art if every reuse is taxed by the appropriator. Monopoly controls have been the exception in free societies. They've been the rule in closed societies. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.
Want answers to creationist claims against evolution? Would you like to know more about evolution yourself, or even engage creationists more directly, with actual peer-reviewed sources to back you up? My book, How Evolution is Scientific, is designed to show the basics of evolutionary theory and how it is so well supported using the scientific method. It's impeccably sourced, with references to the actual scientific material, and is arranged using the creationists own criteria of what is scientific. Using their own arguments against them, see how evolution is scientific, but creationism is not. Based on observations, accurate predictions, logic, and evidence. Get answers to common creationist claims, and even a primer on abiogenesis, the start of all life. It's all in my book, How Evolution is Scientific, available at Amazon, and on Kindle, EPUB, and PDF as well. Get How Evolution is Scientific and never be taken in by creationists again.